We'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. We're continuing, of course, our study of the book of 1 Samuel, this great Old Testament book. And what we're doing is we're in the transition time period. We're seeing the transition from the time of the judges, the last judge being Samuel, to the time of the kings. First king is being Saul. And Saul has become the first king. And as we know, he started well, but he will not finish well. And as we look at it, that as I said last week, basically, Saul had basically one really good chapter. And when you look through his life, beginning even this morning, we're going to see that he began begins to fail, and we'll see how all that ties together. Uh, from this point on, really, the nation of Israel is going to be led by a king. Had, up to that point, it had been Samuel, who was a judge, and now the king. As we look at this, there's several things I want you to think about. First of all, there, we're going to briefly look, or get a brief look at Saul's life. I'm going to do that, and then we're going to look at some events that bring about his failure. So I've got some things right at the very start, before we actually get into the passage, that will look at some areas and some things about Saul's life, give you kind of the, the big overview. Well, as we start, most of you know I love track and field. I love. I coached uh, track for a long time and had a lot of fun. And I can still remember seeing sometimes, especially when you go to like a high school meet and a guy's going to run the 400 or maybe the 800 and maybe they're not used to really running it. Sometimes they just start off so fast and they're looking so good and people are saying like, wow, they're, they're way ahead. Well, they're way ahead because they're running way too fast at the beginning. And then they get around to what they call that final curve. And we used to say the bear jumped on their back and, and they began to really slow, go slow. And we always say they started great, but they didn't finish very great. And when we think about the Bible and we think about the life of, of Saul, he starts so well. In fact, those couple of chapters where we saw that he took leadership and did everything, he starts so well, but then he finishes so poorly. And we begin to see uh, what happens today. You know, sometimes Christians, we're the same way. We start off and somebody will say something like, oh, I'm really excited. I trusted Christ and I want to get really growing and I want to go to a Bible study and I want to go to the church and everything. And before you know it, they're doing good. And then and then all of a sudden you look up and you can't find them anymore and you say, I thought you were coming to the Bible study. Oh, I, I just don't really have the time anymore and those kind of things. And so it's real easy for us to start out good and then to not finish so well. And, and so a lot of times we move from living for Christ to living for ourselves. Well, we need to look at maybe the life of Saul and see what we can learn there. Let me give you something to think about, just give you a big sort of a big overview here. We're going to look at three things real quickly and then we'll get into the passage. But we're going to talk about Saul. Saul's failures. We're going to talk about uh, the four events that, that basically happened in his life, and then we're going to look at his character. So let me give you these four failures, and we'll get into the passage in just a second. The first of Saul's failures was he failed to unite the kingdom. That's what the king was supposed to do. They all wanted to come together. They wanted to be, king, be a king like, have a king like every other nation. They wanted Saul to unite the nation. He never did it. He was never able to do that. We saw one time one time, he got the people together. We're going to see that he fails after that. The second thing we said, he failed to obey God. There's going to be a number of times that he, obeys, that he disobeys God. He is not, he's not set out to do the will of God. He's set out to do his own will. And there's, this is the, probably the key thing in his life that he failed to do. The third thing is he failed to lead the army. That's what the king was supposed to do. In fact, they said back at the, at, when they wanted a king, they said, we want a king that would lead us into battle like everybody else. And he actually failed to do that. In fact, in the army, his son Jonathan actually became the hero. And then later on, David became the hero. So he failed in a lot of ways. When you look at this, I want to give you four events that bring about his failure and the fact that he's not the king. The first one is this. The first one is found in this chapter. We'll see it in chapter 13. He actually offered 
offer sacrifices. Now, he's not supposed to offer sacrifices because he's not a priest. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, but he offers sacrifices and he fails to wait on Samuel who is supposed to come offer the sacrifice. We're going to see later on in chapter 15, he doesn't do what God told him to do. And when he's confronted with it, he lies and then tries to rationalize what happened. We'll see that in chapter 15. Later on in chapter 18, for years and years, he tries to kill David. You understand that David was anointed as king as about 15 years old, and he wasn't king until he was 30 years old. And in that 15-year time period, Saul tried to kill David a number of times. You see his pride and his fear. And then the last thing that we're going to see about him is in chapter 28. He disobeys the Bible by dealing with a witch when God refused to answer him. God would, he went to God to say, give me an answer. And he's so far out of fellowship and he's doing so many things wrong that God won't answer him. And so he goes to a witch to see if he can get some answers. And so we see that there was a lot of failure there in his life. The last thing I want you to see before we get into the passage is Saul's character. And there are several things. Number one, he is jealous of David and others. He even at one time wants to kill his own son because his son really looks good and he does. We see that he's disobedient. He did not live by the word of God. And as believers, we need to live by the word of God. He was prideful. He wanted the glory. One thing we're going to see this morning is to realize that it is God who gets the glory, not us. And Saul wanted the glory. And then the last thing is he was a selfish person. He put himself before anyone else. There's going to be a time that, that he has a, has a battle and he puts up a, a, a statue of himself to say, look, look what I did. I mean, he's just, that's the kind of man he is. And it really breaks our heart because he started so well, but he ended so poorly. Though the first thing we're going to see, the first of the four events is going to be in this passage, and it leads to Saul's failure. He acted as a priest. He did not wait on Samuel. So let's start in the passage, and it starts off a little strange, and I'll tell you what it is in just a minute. But First Samuel chapter 13, we'll start there. We'll go through the passage. Uh, there's a number of verses. There's 23 verses. We'll go fairly quickly just because of time, and I want you to see it. Look at chapter First Samuel 13. Look at verse 1. Now, I'm reading a New American Standard. Here's what it says. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Now, if you're like me, you look at that passage, and you realize that if you've got a New American Standard where it says Saul was 30 years old, the word 30 is in italics. If you go a little further down, and it says, and he reigned 42 years, the word 40 is in italics. What that means is that's not in the Scripture. In fact, when you looked at the manuscripts, if you go back to what they call the Masoretic Text, which is where we get the Old Testament, there are no words there. In fact, let me just show you, if you have a Bible, the New King James actually says, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years, the NIV says Saul was 30 years old, and he reigned 40 years. The New American Standard says Saul was 30 years old, and he reigned 42 years. The ESV didn't put anything in there. It just leaves it blank. And so what we find is we don't really know what it's saying there, because all of the texts that we have, the Masoretic texts and the others that we have, uh, it's just not there. It's just one of those strange things. What we do know is that Saul was king for 40 years. Acts 13, 21 says that. So when this is taking place, the, probably the best reading would be Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign and he reigned for 40 years. We do not know how old Saul is in this passage. He's got to be 
He's got to be close to 50, most likely, maybe even in his mid-40s, because his son Jonathan is fighting in battles, and you had to be 20 years old to go to war in Israel. So his son is at least 20 years old. That probably makes him 40, 45 to 50. We don't know. So when it says Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign and reigned for 40 42 years. We don't really know exactly what should be in there. Uh, it, probably the best would say he started when he was 30 and he reigned for around 40 years. And that's what happened. So that's where we are. Now, we're going to get some battles this morning. I've got some maps to show you. You're going to see a battle, but we're going to see Saul and we're going to see his failures. So let's see what happens. Look at verse 2. Now, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. But he sent the rest of the people away east to his tent. Now, we don't understand exactly what's going on, okay? Saul has got 3,000 men. He's got 2,000 with him in a place called Michmash. That's near Bethel, the Bethel area. He's got 1,000 men with his son, Jonathan. That's only 3,000. It says he sent the rest home. Now, what you don't understand, and we have to go through the passage, but let me remind you of something. Israel and the Philistines have been fighting each other. We are finding that as the years have gone by, the Philistines have the upper hand. The Philistines have a much bigger army than the Jewish people. In fact, the Jewish people don't even have any weapons. We'll see that toward the end. So things are not going good. Saul had, a, had some soldiers, but he sent most of them home, so he only has 3,000 men. 2,000 are with him in Michmash, and another 1,000 are with his son Jonathan. Just to show you, here's Michmash. That's where some of his are, and his son is in Gibeah, and so that's where they are. They got 3,000 soldiers. You say, well, 3,000 seems, like seems like a fair number. Well, we're going to see how many the Philistines have in just a second. The rest of the army, it says, he sent the rest of the people away. Why? We have no idea. It doesn't say why. We don't know why Saul, in the midst of battles, is sending most of his army away. We said over and over that Saul, uh, from, from basically this chapter on, Saul is going to look bad the rest of the way. He is not going to be a leader. He is not going to be a godly man. He's going to turn away from God. He's going to disobey God. He's going to lie, and he's not going to be a great leader. And it begins in this passage. So watch what happens. Saul has 3,000 men. Notice in verse 3, Jonathan, now remember, Jonathan is Saul's son. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And I'm going to stop for a second. I want to show you something before we read the next verse. It says that, it, that Jonathan had a great victory at a place called Geba. Here's Geba, this little town. He comes up from Gibeah and defeats the Philistines. And that's really amazing. And the Philistines back off. And it basically says this. That when the Philistines heard of it, they, they were upset. And then Saul blew the trumpet. Now, let me ask you a question. If you don't have to answer out loud, who gave the victory right then? Jonathan. Watch what happens. Look at verse 3 again. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison, uh, the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Listen, who took the credit for the victory? Who took the credit? Saul did. Saul's, Jonathan went and had a great victory over the Philistines with a very small number of troops and really no, no weapons, and they win, and Saul announces throughout the place that Saul has smitten the garrison of the Philistines. Now, it wasn't Saul. He is so insecure in his position that even when his son 
his great son, Jonathan. And Jonathan, let me just say something about Jonathan. Jonathan is one of the greatest people in the Bible. We're going to see him as we go through his life. He dies at the end of 1 Samuel. It makes you sad when he dies. He is probably one of the greatest men in the Bible. He is not a man of pride. He, is a, he trusts God. He loves David. They become best friends. And he is a, <coughs> a great leader. <coughs> but Jonathan is the one that gives the victory. Saul is the one that takes the credit. Listen, when we do something for God, we don't get the credit. It's God through us. You remember that song we just sang? It is always Jesus Christ is through Christ in me. If God uses you to lead somebody to Christ, if God uses you to share something, if God uses you to teach, if God uses you to help somebody, it's not you. You don't say, look what I did. You say, look what God did through me. God always gets the glory. In this passage, Saul gets the glory, and that's a mistake. And in our lives, we should know that if we're going to do anything, it's through God. And, and there's the pride. You remember what John the Baptist said when they asked him about Jesus? He said, listen, he must increase, I must decrease. You think about pride. Pride is so destructive. It caused the fall of Satan. He wanted to be like God. It caused the fall of mankind. They wanted to be like God. The goal is for us to live for the glory of God. And so if God gives us opportunities to serve him, in any way, always say, Lord, thank you. It is your grace that I get to serve. It is your grace I get to teach. It is your grace I get to help. It is your grace I get to do anything, and you get all the glory. You remember John 15? Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So it's powerful. Now, look at the end of the verse. I just want you to remember. It says, that also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. That means they stunk. That means the Philistines said, we're going to get them back. They killed us. They killed some of our people. We're going we're gonna to get an army together, and we're going to go get those Jews. That's what their plan is to do. Now, you'd say, well, it seems like they're going to be okay because Israel has how many troops? 3,000? 2,000 with Saul, 1,000 with Jonathan? Well, let's see. Let's see what the Philistines have. Notice verse 5. Now, the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. Listen, we're not talking about regular people. They're talking about 30,000 chariots. They're talking about 6,000 people on horses, not counting all the rest of the people. Now, Israel has 3,000, and they've got... 36,000 horses and chariots, not even counting people. They probably have 50 or 100,000. There's no telling how many people they've got lined up there. Now, if you're the Jewish people, what are you going to do? Notice what it says. Now, the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and they lined up at a place, and they camped at Michmash. And so if you, they come to Michmash, and if you remember, we saw that. Now, the, by the way, the Philistines live way out over here, and they come up, and they fight all the time in these areas. They've come up around today, that's Orpah, and they come here, and they've come to Michmash, and they're getting ready to fight. The next real battle is going to be right here between Geba and Mishmash. Now, the Jewish people there at Gibeah and, and Gilgal is sort of the headquarters. That's where they're supposed to be. And so here come the, here come the, the Philistines, and they got 30,000 chariots. Now, that is huge. They got 6,000 people on horses, and then they got so many people that you can't even count them. Now, if you're Jewish people, we're, we're going to find out at the end of the passage, Jewish people don't have any weapons. 
Jewish people don't have a whole bunch of swords and go, well, if they're coming, we got our swords. They don't even have any swords. So what's going to happen? If you were a Jewish person right then, what would you do? Well, look what they did. Verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits, and some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. For as, the, as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people following him trembled. Now, listen, some of the people, they actually left and crossed over the Jordan River. It comes down this way by Jericho. So a lot of the people that were here, a lot of the Jewish people, they just ran across and got over in here. The rest of them just hid in caves. They're not going to fight. They can't fight 30,000 people on chariots, and they can't fight 6,000 horsemen, and they can't fight 50,000 people. Regular guys. They only got 3,000 troops, and most of them are running off. How are you going to win? Well, let me tell you something. Every time Israel is in fellowship with God, they win no matter the odds. And every time they're out of fellowship with God, they lose no matter the odds. And let me tell you this, that every time you're in fellowship, you're going to have victory in your Christian life. And every time you're out of fellowship, you're not going to have victory in your Christian life. With God, you always have victory. Apart from God, you cannot have victory. You can do all things through the one who strengthens you. Apart from him, you can do absolutely nothing. And so the people are running. In fact, it says that some of them, they crossed the Jordan. They're running for their lives. And, and, and notice it says, and all the people, this is the end of verse 7, all the people following him trembling. They're all afraid. They say, we don't have a chance. We don't have a chance to fight them. They've got all these people, and we got nothing. Well, as we continue, we're now going to see the failure of, of, of Saul. What happens? And I like, I like to look at this. I just say, this is beginning of his failures. We're going to see the first of the four key events in his life that show his failures. You remember we saw, showed it as one is in chapter 13, one's in 15, one's in chapter 18, and one's in chapter 28. Well, here's the one in chapter 13. What does he do? You know what he does? He takes the place of Samuel, and he's acting as a priest. And you go, what? What are you talking about? What are we talking about? Watch. Look a little further. Verse 8. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Now the best we can understand, Samuel, who is the most respected person in Israel, he's a great man. He's been a leader since he was a little boy. He has turned over his judgeship. He's still a prophet, and he's still a priest. He's turned over the judgeship. He's now King, King Saul. And he had told Saul, you come back to Gilgal, and we will off, I will offer a sacrifice there, and we'll get ready to go to war. So Samuel is coming to Gilgal. Saul is supposed to wait at Gilgal until Samuel gets there, and Samuel's going to offer a sacrifice. Watch what happens. Now, he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. Samuel said, I'll be there in seven days. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offering, and he offered the burnt offering. What? He didn't wait for the seven days. Samuel was coming. And by the way, Samuel does get there within the seven days. He was supposed to wait. He didn't wait. He decided to offer. Now, let me tell you something. A burnt offering, there were, two, there were many kind of offerings. In this passage, he mentions two, burnt offering and peace offering. A burnt offering is you take an animal, you kill it. Priest did all this. You give it to the priest. Priest puts it up on the altar, sets it on fire, burns it completely up. When it's burned completely up, it's a picture of total sacrifice. It'd be like you saying to God, I want you to have my life, Lord. I want to live for you. I want to go wherever you want me to do. That's a burnt offering. A peace offering 
is where you'd bring an animal and you give it to the priest. He kills it, puts it up there, cooks it, cuts part of it off, gives it back to you. He keeps part of it. You keep part of it and you have a picnic. It's called a peace offering. And it's basically God did something good for us. And so we say, thank you, Lord. Great peace. That's what he's going to offer to sacrifice. And it's a burnt offering. And notice what it says. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. Now he wasn't supposed to do that. Listen, if you're not a priest, you're not supposed to do those things. There was a king later on that was a good king, but he got prideful. And toward the end, he went into the temple and walked into the holy place, and 87 priests followed him, came in behind him and said, you're not supposed to be in here. And he said, I can be in there if I want to. And as he was speaking, leprosy broke out on his face. And the priest went, you better get out of here. And he left, and he never got over the leprosy. Listen, it is not something to play around with. Only the tribe of Levi was supposed to do the sacrifices. And Samuel's supposed to come as a priest to offer the sacrifice, and Saul did what he knew he was not supposed to do. He should have waited. So look at this. Look at verse 10. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. Now, listen, as soon as it was over, Samuel came just as he promised, but Saul had not waited. Can you imagine if you're Saul? You've offered a sacrifice. You knew you weren't supposed to do that. You just did it because you got afraid because you saw the army was coming and your people were running off. You got all scared. You didn't wait on God, and so you did it. And then here comes Samuel, and Samuel is here just like he said he was coming, and you go out to greet him and go, hey. And Samuel goes, what have you done? What did you do? You can't, what did you do? You can't offer a sacrifice. That's what he's going to say to him. So watch. As soon as he finished offering, this is verse 10 again, as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came out, uh, came, and Samuel went out to meet him and to greet him. He comes out, and look, in verse 11, Samuel said, what have you done? What have you done? And Saul said, well, I saw the people. They were scattered in front of me, and, and you didn't come within the appointed days, and the Philistines were assembling at Mishmash. Therefore, I said, they're going to come down. I better do this. He said, what have you done? What have you, you can't do this. What have you done? And so what does Saul do? He rationalizes. The same thing we do sometimes when we sin. We say something like, well, I, I, I couldn't help it. Well, I, did, I wasn't even watching. I didn't know. I mean, you know. And look what Saul says. He says, the people were scattering and you didn't come. He did come. He came when he said he was going to come. Saul just didn't wait. He said, well, the people were scattering and you didn't come. And the Philistines were coming and I got all scared. And I looked around and I said, well, I better do something. And so I forced myself. Look what Saul did. Saul blamed his own soldiers and Samuel. And see, we do the same thing. When we sin, we want to blame somebody else. We want to say something like this. Well, it, it's, it's not really that bad. I mean, I, I know it's wrong, but it's not really that bad. And see, everybody else does it. I mean, if you look around at the culture, some of the things we do, I mean, I did it, but see, everybody else does it too. It's, you know, everybody does it, and, and I really couldn't help it. I mean, I just was in a situation where there was nothing I could do but, but to sin. I mean, that's what it was. And really, it's somebody else's fault. Because, I mean, if they hadn't put that there, I wouldn't have done this here. It goes back to when Adam and Eve sinned, and God came to them. And God came straight to Adam. And what he wanted Adam to say is, Adam, have you eaten from the fruit which I told you not to eat? He's supposed to say, yeah, I blew it. He says, and he actually blames God and the woman. He says, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit. He's actually saying, God, you gave me a defective woman. And that's, what's, that's why we sinned, and I couldn't help it. And that's what some people do. 
And when we have sin in our lives, it is the easiest thing to say, I, I couldn't help it. Uh, everybody else does it. Uh, it's somebody else's fault. If that hadn't been there, what we need to do is what? When we sin, we confess our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Look what he goes on to say in verse 12. He says, therefore, I said, now the Philistines are going to come down against me, and I've not asked the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. I just had to do it. I forced myself. It is never right to do wrong. Just remember that. It's never right to do wrong. And he says, I, I, I had to offer the sacrifice. Samuel will look at him and say, you know you're never supposed to do that. I told you I was coming and I came and you didn't wait on me. That's what happened. Now, this is the key. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. He says, you have acted foolishly. Do you know that any time we sin, that's foolish. It's stupid. I mean, I sin all the time, and I look at myself and I say, are you an idiot or what? Look what you're doing. You're foolish. We know from the scripture that wisdom is obeying the word of God and foolish is disobeying the word of God. And Samuel says to Saul, you are foolish. You've done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of God. The commandment was to wait and to let Samuel offer the sacrifice. And in verse 14, he says, your kingdom shall not endure. Now, this is, this is early. You understand that David has not been anointed yet, and from the time David is anointed, it's going to be at least 15 years before David becomes the king. David hadn't even been anointed yet, so even though he says, your kingdom will end, it's still at least 15 to 20 years before it ends. He says, God is looking for someone, for a man after his own heart. Look at verse 14. Your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. Who is that? We already know from the scripture, the man after God's own heart is who? It's King David. God's looking for King David. That's what he's looking for. God is looking for a man after his own heart. And we know that in Acts chapter 13, David is described as the man after God's own heart. You know what he's looking for? He's looking for me and you to be men and women after God's heart. To be after God's heart means that we want the things God wants. We love the thing God loves. We want to do what God wants us to do. We want to live by the scripture. We want to say, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I do. I want to, I want to love people like you love people. I want to do things. I want to be a man after your own heart. And he openly disobeys God. And he said, God's already appointed him a ruler. Listen, it hasn't even happened yet, but it's as good as doing it. It's past tense in the Hebrew. God has appointed him. That's David, it's going to happen. And then look what happens. Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of, of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people with him. Do you know how many he's got left? He's got 600 people, that's all. Samuel leaves Saul. And watch what happens. Saul and his son Jonathan, the people who were present when they were staying at Gibeah of Benjamin, while the Philistines camped at Michmash. Though that's basically what's going on. They're, they're there. Saul and Jonathan stay at a place called Gibeah. Right here. 
Now, the Philistines have come down. We're going to find that they're doing raiding parties all in this area, that place and some others as well. Look at the next verse. It says, And the raiders came from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One turned toward Oprah to the land of Shal. Another turned toward Beth Haran. And another company turned toward the border, which overlooks the valley of Zeboam, toward the wilderness. So while Saul is there with how many men now? He started with 3,000. He's only got 600. How many did the Philistines have? 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, not even counting the soldiers, which could be as high as 50,000 people. And they're doing the raiders. Now, why is Israel in such trouble? Look at the next verse. Now, no blacksmith could be found in the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines each to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, his hoe, and they charged a certain amount of money. That's what 21 is all about. There were no blacksmiths. See, the Philistines had taken control, and they wouldn't let the Jewish people even have blacksmiths, because if they had blacksmiths, they'd make weapons. And since they don't have blacksmiths, they can't make weapons. Look at the next verse. He says, so it came about on the day of the battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were with Saul and and his son, Jonathan. Now, I want you to think about that. You're getting ready to go to war, and you go, okay, how many people got a sword? Saul said, I have a sword. Jonathan says, I have a sword. Anybody else got a sword? Nobody else has a sword. We're fixing to go fight these people. We don't even have swords because they took away all our stuff and we're in real trouble. And let me tell you, if you're Israel right here, you're in real trouble. Saul has turned away from God. He's openly disobeyed God and they're not in good position right now. And how are they going to have a victory? If you were in good fellowship with God It seems strange that 600 people could beat 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and all kind of other people. With God, nothing is impossible. Look down at verse 23. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Soldiers of the Philistines are coming. They're getting ready for the battle. And this is what we're going to see next week. Saul and Jonathan are at Geba, and the Philistines are at Michmash, and they're going to have a battle. How can they have victory? Let me ask you a question. You're in a fallen world, which is controlled by Satan. And you have a flesh, which is a natural bent to sin. So you're in a fallen world that is controlled by Satan and affecting your flesh, pulling you to sin all day long. How in the world are you going to have a victory? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Walk in the Spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The only way you're going to have victory is in God's power. And we're going to see next time how we're going to have the Jewish people going to have victory. If they're going to have victory, you have to read ahead to find out. But if they're going to have victory, it can only be in God's power. Let me give you some applications. First of all, we must live for God and not ourselves. We want to be men and women after God's heart. That means every one of us in this room who know Jesus Christ is Savior, we've trusted in Him, He's given us eternal life. We want to live for Him. We want to, we want to love the things He loves. We want to be men and women after God's own heart because one of these days you're going to stand before Him and what will He say? We want Him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we want to hear Him say. So we want to rest in His power and have patience trusting in the circumstances of life. Saul refused to do that. 
Saul went ahead and offered the sacrifice. Saul did what he knew was wrong because he just couldn't wait. And that's why the Bible says, be anxious for nothing but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. You got to trust him. You got to rest in him. He is the one that works all things according to the counsel of his will. And sometimes we say, I wish you'd do something now, God. And he says, I've got it in hand. Just wait. Just trust me. You have to trust him. That's what a walk of faith is. The third thing, give the glory to God and to others. Saul got the glory. Jonathan had the victory. Saul got the glory. We're going to see later on, same thing happens. And when, when God uses us, give God the glory. When God uses you, you play music, you sing, you teach, you lead somebody to Christ, you do all, anything you do, and somebody says, wow, good job, and you go, yeah, that, thank you. That God, is, God is a great God. He's so good. He gets all the glory. Don't say, yeah, I know, I'm pretty good. Aren't no, you're not pretty good. You're only good if it's his, him through you. That's the way it works. The second application is let's not try to justify or rationalize our sin. It, it's very easy to do that. Very easy. You got to deal with it. That means confess it and forsake it. So when we sin, let's don't blame everybody else and let's don't blame God and let's don't blame that we say that we couldn't help it or that we're in a bad situation or it's not really that bad. We know what's right and wrong from the scripture and when we disobey the scripture, confess it and forsake it. He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.